2: to the new monthly history today podcast. I'm Catherine Hadley, the website editor. In this show, in
1: 1911 when the revolution broke out in Wuhan, it was really a uh, high time uh, for something uh, terminal to happen uh, to the Qing.
2: Jonathan Fenby on the 1911 Chinese Revolution.
0: Another dozen or so spies were executed during the course of the First World War in the Tower who were mainly motivated by uh, less noble um, reasons of uh, of financial gain.
2: That was Nigel Jones, who talked to me about the history of the Tower of London.
3: Well, we wanted the book to be um, as comprehensive as it could be, so that although um, the main thrust is to do with with Western medicine, we didn't want to ignore all those other wonderful healing traditions that um, have their own long histories,
2: That was an extract from my interview with Helen and William Bynum, who I talked to about great discoveries in medicine and the changing relationship between doctors and patients. First up, we have Jonathan Fenby, who talks about the 1911 Chinese Revolution, which celebrates its centenary this year. Jonathan Fenby is the author of the feature article of the October issue of History Today. I asked him if he could explain more specifically why the 1911 Chinese Revolution has been forgotten today.
1: Why is this revolution not better known? We know about the first emperor, we know about the Tang, the Ming, the other great dynasties of China. But 1911 is is not a date very well known outside China. The main reason for this, I think, is that it did not produce a durable, long-term regime in China. What followed was extremely messy and not very good for China, and I'll get back to that uh, in a moment. China had to wait until 1949 for the real revolution, which brought Mao Zedong and the communists to power. But what was clear – by 1911 was that the last imperial dynasty, the Qing, had run out of steam. They seemed to have really just lacked the will to go on ruling. They'd had a terrible time, it must be said, for the previous uh, three quarters of a century. In 1800, China was still an enormous uh, superpower. It accounted, according to recent estimates, for one third of all wealth on the globe. And yet, by the middle of the 19th century, it was in trouble. Basically, the dynasty had spent far too much money on uh, imperial excursions, military expeditions uh, in all directions. There was huge corruption uh, at court and the population was booming and uh, the economy and the system could not keep up with this. In the late 1830s, the British staged the first Opium War in which the Chinese were completely defeated and forced to sign a treaty under which they allowed the British and then other foreigners to set up what were called Treaty ports in China where they ruled themselves uh, and could do really uh, as they liked. The Qing did not regard this as a threat to them. They were not a maritime uh, empire, they were a land based empire and they were worried about possible contenders for the dragon throne, and the British and the French and the Germans and the others were not trying to take over China. They would get what they could out of it, splitting the melon, as it was called, but uh, they did not actually want the dynasty to fall. More serious were a series of huge revolts which broke out against the Qing in the middle of the 19th century, the best known, the Taiping, led by a former village teacher who decided that he was the son of the Christian God and had gone up to heaven to be told by God to get rid of the Qing. The, these people, the Taiping, marched out of southern China, got to the Yangtze, established a capital uh, in the southern uh, imperial city of Nanjing and continued to rule from there for 14 years. The huge civil war took probably 25 to 30 million lives and devastated provinces across China. At the same time… A group of uh, bandits, basically, uh, riding fast horses called the Nian, rose against the dynasty in eastern China. Uh, there were probably about two million of them. Uh, in the southwest China, Muslims uh, established a separate kingdom in the province of Yunnan, and the whole of Shenzhen, a huge uh, Sorry, right there and and the whole of Xinjiang, uh, a huge territory which leads to Central Asia, uh, also declared independence of China. So. The dynasty was in a mess between uh, 1850 and about 1870. At the same time, there was dynastic uh, trouble as to who should uh, inherit the throne. Uh, That was followed by a period of relative stability. But then in 1894, China and Japan went to war, and Japan was completely defeated by the rising power across the sea in Asia. Then in 1900, the boxers... Who were actually, they weren't rebels. Often people talk about the Boxer Rebellion. It wasn't a rebellion, it was actually a rising in support of the Qing dynasty against the foreigners and against Christianity, which the Boxers regarded as destroying Chinese tradition and civilization. The dynasty very foolishly allied with the Boxers against the foreigners. The foreign legation quarter in Beijing was besieged and a major military expedition led by the British and the French, but also with German, Russians, and others uh, involved, uh, marched on Beijing, lifted the siege and imposed a huge indemnity on the uh, dynasty, whose emperor fled to the inland of China. And as well as the indemnity, this was uh, a further sign that uh, the Qing had lost what was called the mandate of heaven, that's to say the right to rule, which Chinese tradition had it was uh, bestowed by the gods on the dynasty. And when things went wrong on this scale, it was clear that the mandate was being withdrawn. Uh, So in 1911, when the revolution broke out, in Wuhan, it was really uh, high time uh, for something uh, terminal to happen uh, to the Qing. The revolution itself was a bit of an accident. Uh, It took place when some revolutionary soldiers uh, made bombs at uh, their headquarters in Wuhan. One of the bombs went off by mistake. Foreign policemen who were in the concessions, the foreign concessions in Wuhan arrived. They found a list of the revolutionaries that forced the other revolutionaries to take action, and Wuhan was taken basically by army rebels in conjunction with the middle-class urban gentry uh, of the middle Yangtze. The rebellion spread across China. The uh, emperor uh, launched a military attack on it, which was extremely successful, uh, and defeated the revolutionaries in Wuhan. But. The revolutionary fire um, was spreading all across uh, the country and in February 1912 led the Dowager Empress to declare abdication on behalf of her infant son, Puyi, who'd been raised to the throne a couple of years earlier. China was in a mess at this point. It had the uh, abdicating um, uh, dynasty of the Qing ending the imperial rule, but the new Republican government, which was declared in Nanjing, uh, had very little authority. It was headed by Sun Yat-sen, a veteran revolutionary who'd been fighting the Qing for all his life, um, but he wasn't an efficient uh, organizer or administrator. And after a couple of months, he stepped down as president and handed rule over Yuan Shikai, who was the military strongman in Beijing. Yuan tried to rule as a dictator. He had himself declared emperor. That didn't last for very long. Uh, There was a revolt against him, and when he died in 1916, China went into the warlord period, which lasted for 10 years, when the country was ruled by militarist generals uh, overseeing provinces and regions that were as big as major European countries. So there was chaos uh, on a a grand national scale. Then in 1926-27, Uh, Sun Yat-sen's successor as leader of the Kuomintang, Sun had died in 1925, uh, that's Chiang Kai-shek, led the uh, nationalist Kuomintang army out of Canton in southern China to take Nanjing, establish a new capital there, take Shanghai, and after a number of um, further wars, campaigns, and a lot of bribery, uh, Chang emerged as the strongman who was meant to run China. There were lots of plans to modernize China at that point, but things again went wrong year after year. There was a regional revoke almost every year. In 1931, the Japanese seized Manchuria, the most advanced industrial part of China in the northeast, and then in 1937, the Japanese launched full-scale war against the nationalists, a war that went on until 1945. Uh, after 1945, the communists who'd originally been allied with the nationalist Kuomintang, but whom Chiang had turned against in 1927 and tried to liquidate, the communists and the nationalists fought a civil war from 1945 to 49, which ended, of course, with the communist victory. So if we look at this period from uh, the rebellion, the revolution uh, of 1911 through to the communist victory, Uh, Also in October in 1949, we have 38 years of uh, weak rule, of anarchy during the nationalist period, of civil wars, of invasion, together with a lot of natural disasters, plagues, floods, famines, uh, droughts which make this a period of Chinese history that seems almost like um, an intermission between the empire and the coming to power of uh, the the communists. And that perhaps is why the revolution of 1911 has not received its uh, historic uh, importance. But um, I would argue, and I do uh, in the article in History Today, that in fact this was an extremely important time for a number of reasons. First of all, it saw the end of the empire which had existed for more than 2,000 years, and that in itself was an enormous event. Secondly, the initial period after the nationalist victories in the late 1920s certainly did represent a time when China wanted to modernize. It wanted to modernize the economy, uh, and lots of plans uh, were laid for that. The trouble was that the internal unrest and the Japanese invasions uh, put an end to that. It was also important in that if one had not had this period, if you like, of China drawing its breath, waiting for what was going to happen next, maybe we would not have had the 1949 uh, takeover by the communists. Uh, If, if, and it's a big if, China had not gone through all the unrest that it did in the 1920s and 30s and the invasion lasting through to uh, 1945, it is possible that the country would have launched onto a modernization path uh, such as we have seen uh, in China over the last three decades. That is one of the great what-ifs of history that historians will be arguing about for a long time to come. But I think for these reasons, 1911 and then the abdication of Puyi, the infant emperor, in February 1912 were very, very important events in world history which should be remembered and which are important also because they form the backdrop, the context within which China has evolved since 1949. And there are those who would say that if Chiang Kai-shek were to be reborn and was living uh, in Shanghai, let us say today, he would go to the Riverside Bund and look out at all the gleaming towers and the modernization of China and say, that's what We were all about in 1911, 1912. They were not able to do it then, but China is doing it today.
2: That was Jonathan Fenby talking about the 1911 Chinese Revolution. I also interviewed Nigel Jones. His book, Tower An Epic History of the Tower of London, is published mid October. I asked him if he could tell me a little bit more about the extraordinary 20th century history of the tower. I also asked him what inspired him to write this book.
0: I always wanted to write about the Tower of London um, because it seemed to me that there was no other building that most encapsulated England on one side. It's probably the oldest building still in use if you discount structures like Stonehenge in the country, and it's always been a central building. Conveniently, it was also built after that most iconic date in English history, 1066 and all that. It was started, in fact, about 10 years after the Norman Conquest in 1066. Uh, The ideas were Williams to build this enormous fortress on the site of a previously existing but ruined Roman fortress to guard the eastern site of his new capital, uh, Londonium Augusta, as the Romans called it, London. Um, He got a monk called Gundolf who'd come over um, with the conquest and and had established a reputation as an ecclesiastical and a military designer to draw up plans for an enormous keep, uh, a typical Norman Mott and Bailey castle. This became the White Tower, the central, oldest and largest portion of the tower with four pepperpot pepper pot turrets at each side, at each corner rather. Um, it was designed for two reasons, as most Norman castles that um, um, encased England were designed, both as a symbol of conquest and oppression to overawe the newly conquered English subjects, and also, if necessary, as a fortress in which the local lord and his retainers would withdraw in times of trouble or rebellion. So it was both defensive and offensive capability. Gradually, however, as the Norman conquest became set in stone and the danger of a Saxon insurrection retreated, um, the tower expanded beyond this original dual function and it became a royal palace, um, a bevy of buildings grew up and then in the reigns of the later Plantagenet kings, um, Henry III and his son Edward I, uh, two curtain walls were built beyond it and 20 towers eventually sprung up in those curtain walls and it basically took on the shape that we see today. Um, It has been in constant use since then and what most interested me and why I wanted to write about this was its multiplicity of functions. It's been not only a fortress and a castle and a military function, but a prison, a royal palace, a menagerie, the site of um, London's first zoo. For, For many years its only zoo, in fact only dissolving under the Duke of Wellington in the 19th century when it moved to its present site in Regent's Park. It was, of course, the location of the crown jewels. It was a place where important prisoners, VIP prisoners of the state were kept, Um, on charges of treason um, stays which all too often ended at the execution block it was an observatory at one time it was the record office the equivalent of the national archives there's virtually no important function of state that the tower hasn't fulfilled at one time or the other so I wanted to write a narrative that concentrated on the people who were in the tower and there are many many of them in fact you can almost say that there's no one in English history, between the Norman Conquest and the uh, Second World War, who did not have some connection, however fleeting, with the Tower. Some of them had a very tragic connection, of course, and um, ended up dead as a result of their links with the Tower. I'm thinking of people like the two wives of Henry VIII executed there, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, Sir Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, uh, the Earl of Stratford, Archbishop Lord, Uh, Duke of Somerset and his supplanter, the Duke of Northumberland in the reign of Edward VI, and, of course, Princess Elizabeth, later to be Queen Elizabeth herself. And she was the monarch who ended the long royal connection uh, with the Tower, effectively, because her memories of her months in the Tower as a prisoner were so horrendous that she no longer wished to um, carry out the functions of a a royal palace. And from then it it decayed into... into, um, uh, ruin and it was finally um, stripped and um, brought down by Oliver Cromwell, and the last ruins were cleared away by Cromwell's successor Charles II. Uh, there are many mysteries connected with the tower, such um, mysteries, of course, preeminently as the um, deaths of the two princes. I think historians have established pretty um, conclusively, and I certainly come down on that side, I'm not a Ricardian revisionist, that it was Richard III who murdered the two princes in the tower? Did he also murder the only king who's been murdered in the tower, the hapless Henry VI? Uh, Quite likely he did. Um, So it's definitely a dark history, a grim history, but there are also lighter sides um, to the tower. Uh, The weird thing is that it became a tourist attraction in the 19th century when it was opened up to visitors for the first time but then it still continued to be a site of death and execution, and this was in the two world wars. Um, by then, the tower was mainly used as a military garrison. There was a garrison of royal fusiliers who were stationed there alongside the beef eaters, the famous uh, yeoman warders, as they're more properly called. And um, it was decided in the First World War that the tower would be a convenient place to execute German spies. The first man who was killed in the town, the first man since the Jacobite Rebellion to have been executed there, was a German naval officer called Karl-Heinz Lodi, uh, who had arrived from New York very early on in the First World War on a spying espionage mission, posing as an American businessman. And he was noticed hanging around Edinburgh, trying to get into the Grand Fleet's base at Rossithen, gather information on his speciality, which was naval affairs. He was the man, incidentally, who is believed to have reported that Russian troops had arrived uh, in England, and he could tell this by seeing the snow on their boots, this famous legend, uh, completely incorrect legend, of Russian troops being there. Um, but Lodi realised that he had attracted notice and fled to Ireland and was picked up in a hotel in, in Killarney in Ireland and brought to London and lodged in the tower, where he was very quickly... Um, tried by court martial and condemned to death. Um, There was a very convenient shooting range in the moat on the east side of the the tower between the Martin and the Constable Towers and it was decided to execute him inside the shooting range. And on the morning of his execution uh, the officer in charge of the firing squad arrived and there's a rather nice story that Lodi got to his feet and said to him rather pathetically I suppose you will not shake the hand of a German spy. To which the officer replied, no, but I will shake the hand of a brave man. And then Lodi went to his death. He was um, a fine man, an officer who was doing his duty as an officer and a gentleman. But another dozen or so spies were executed during the course of the First World War in the Tower who were mainly motivated by uh, less noble Um, reasons of uh, of financial gain to become spies and they were all rounded up and shot in their turn. Uh, Another famous figure in in English, Irish and indeed in European and world history who was briefly confined at the Tower was Sir Roger Casement the great humanitarian um, who exposed the scandal of um, Belgian genocide in the Belgian Congo, Africa's biggest country and then did the same thing for the genocide that was going on among the rubber workers in the Putumayo region on the borders of Brazil and Peru. Casement, who ruined his health um, in that great humanitarian mission of bringing the world's notice um, uh, of these scandals, uh, retired from the diplomatic service uh, to his native island and became ever more interested and indeed ever more in extreme in his espousal of Irish Republican causes. He ended up, during the um, First World War, he was first in New York, um, agitating among the Irish community there, and he then went to Germany in the war, in the middle of the war, and that was, of course, uh, interpreted as an act of treason, since he was still a British subject, Ireland still being under British rule, and he attempted to persuade Irish prisoners of war, in prison of war camps in Germany, to defect and to join an Irish brigade to fight for the liberation of their country. Having largely failed in that mission, he was sent uh, on a U-boat to Ireland to either take part in or call off the Easter Rising in Easter 1916, uh, depending on the situation as he found it. He was swamped by tides as he came ashore in a rubber dinghy uh, near Tralee on the western coast of Ireland, uh, arrested in an exhausted state and brought, still in his um, sea-soaked clothes, to the tower. And he was lodged there for about a week. Uh, He tried to commit suicide by um, squidgling nails out of the wall and swallowing them of his um, cell. And also by taking a draft of curare, the famous South American poison that he carried around with him ever since his sojourn in South America. Uh, But fortunately, or possibly fortunately, it was too old and had no effect. Um, His solicitor came to see him and told Prime Minister Asquith of the deplorable condition he was in in the Tower, still dressed in his um, sea-soaked clothes, and he was then moved to Pentonville Prison, tried at the Old Bailey, and eventually, in August of the same year, hanged for high treason. So he was probably the last political prisoner at the Tower, with the single exception of the Deputy Führer of Nazi Germany, Rudolf Hess who was held only for two days at the Tower after parachuting into Scotland on his um, eccentric mission to try and bring peace between Germany and England in uh, May 1941. So we can say that the last political prisoner to be held in the Tower was, was Rudolf Hess. More famously, perhaps, even than Hess, the last actual prisoners held in the Tower included the gangsters Reggie and Ronnie Cray, the twin brothers, ...whose gangster empire in the East End of London was um, a major feature of 1960s London... ...along with Carnaby Street and all the other features of it. They too were imprisoned in a house in the Tower of London... ...in what is now the Wellington Barracks... ...because they were doing national service and they kept absconding... ...and running back to their old mum in the East End... ...and the army would then bring them back to the Tower. Uh, in the end, um, after having escaped from the ta- Tower itself... The army washed its hands of them, decided they were too much of a good thing and discharged them with dishonour to continue their notorious criminal career. So they were very probably the last prisoners of, the, uh, of a distinguished line of prisoners that had started under William Rufus way back uh, in the 1070s when the tower was first built. And I, I end my book with their story because I think it's an appropriate way to draw a line
2: That was Nigel Jones on the history of the Tower of London. Last month I also talked to Helen and William Bynum about the history of medicine and some of the greatest medical discoveries. So I'm with um, Helen and William Bynum. Helen um, was a lecturer in medical history at the University of Liverpool and William is Emeritus Professor of Medical History at UCL. My first question about your latest book, Great Discoveries in Medicine, is why you wrote it and what did you want to achieve in doing so?
4: We wrote it actually because Timson Hudson asked us to and we had a formula into which uh, the book fit in terms of the page length and the kind of division of chapters and so forth. So in a sense, we had, we had a straitjacket. We were asked to do a job... Uh, and given a straitjacket that limited exactly what we could do. But we actually found the straitjacket liberating, because if you were given your own devices about great discoveries of medicine, you might end up with a book that was much longer. There were many more chapters. And the fact that we had 70 chapters uh, to deal with, we actually found uh, liberating in terms of the constraints that it put on us. And we then set about uh, dividing kind of medical knowledge and under the rubric of discovery into the kinds of headings that the book itself reflects in terms of discovering the body or understanding health and disease, chapters on, on, on the uh, epidemic, major epidemic diseases, on major uh, pharmacological advances and so forth. Uh, and what we wanted to achieve was a mix of the past and the present. There are lots of chapters that are on parts of medicine that have relatively short histories. All of our authors have been instructed to approach their subjects historically, but you can't talk about lasers or medical robots uh, in the long durée. You have to talk about them in the relatively recent past. So some of the chapters are less historical than others, but what we wanted to do was to have a book in which the history, the long history of medicine, merges with contemporary medical knowledge and so that readers could appreciate both the longevity of medicine's past and some of the things that they might experience if they take themselves off to a doctor's surgery.
2: Um, One thing about the book is that its breadth is absolutely huge, um, both in terms of the time frame, because you start off in ancient Egypt, mention uh, ancient, ancient Greece, and then it goes right through to cancer treatments today, and the you know um, genetic revolution. Um, it's also geographically it's a huge breadth because you do cover um, Islamic medicine, Chinese, Indian, but then a lot about the Western world as well, and then also the topics covered because. There's issues of sort of mental health, blood circulation, hormones, germs, disease, medical instruments surgery. So I just wondered, I mean, how how did you how did you go about organising this? How did you define the time frame and in terms of the how did you select also the topics and then how did you approach all the various contributors and sort of tie the whole? together.
3: Well, we wanted the book to be um, as comprehensive as it could be, so that although um, the main thrust is to do with, with Western medicine, we didn't want to ignore all those other wonderful healing traditions that um, have their own long histories and are also a part of modernity. I mean, Ayurvedic medicine is still practiced today, and if you think how enormous... Um, India the Indian subcontinent is and the Indian di- diaspora it's it's you know it's a massive population group that you were talking about so we wanted to make sure that those things got at least a, a a sort of look in and and that they were dealt with in a way that um would also I mean this book is aimed at people who perhaps don't know that much about the history of medicine and are looking for a good place to start and and and, and uh, uh interested in sort of an engaging format and we hoped that we would be able to, to bring those wonderful traditions in, into, into the book um, in, in such a way that people would have a good introduction to them as well. And we thought the best way to do that was to talk about perhaps how those traditions viewed the way the body worked in health and in sickness and, and look a little bit at um, the way they actually um, dealt with um, healing different diseases that were recognized in those different traditions. So that sort of helped us with, it, with the, the geography. The time frame, well, we, we, we have used literate traditions, so it's traditions where something has been written down, and that really takes you back to the ancient Egyptians. Um, and it was just... And also, they were, the, these were also wonderful opportunities for the illustrations as well. So the, that was always in the back of our minds when we were trying to choose these things, and some were easier to illustrate than others so that that really helped us set the first um, part of the book, which was called "Discovering the Body." So we have those traditions, and then we we thought about how we might break down western medicine and i 've always liked this idea of of things getting uh, the, the, the focus of attention getting ever smaller, so you start off with bodies and then you go down to tissues and then cells and then molecules. And so we used that format as a way to talk about um, discovering the body in, in, in the Western tradition.
2: Um, and my third question was going to be, I mean, how new is your book, sort of how novel in terms of its ideas, and how does it fit into existing historiography um, about the history of medicine? And I wonder, just because the breadth of it is, is so big, I mean, is that... Is, has anything sort of of that scope ever been written before? Is that something that might be new about it?
4: Well, there are lots of uh, kind of Plato to NATO surveys of the history of medicine that inevitably start either with prehistoric medicine or with Egyptian medicine and go to somewhere near the, the present day. That approach is not necessarily that fashionable now, because, and it was much more... Um, Liked by the old uh, school historians and men who were mostly doctors and who thought that everything was always inevitably be getting better and better. Um, but it seems to me that there is very little at the level that we have uh, pitched this book that does exactly what this book does in terms of surveying. The, the whole of medicine in a relatively short period of time. I mean, you could you could you know, you could have had 17 volumes and and uh, the encyclopedic uh, format for it. But given a 300-plus page book, it seems to us that we have got really uh, a, a vast amount of major topics, major turning points, and as always. Uh, the discovery motif was very important for 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 our for our authors, so that so that when we were searching for the list of things, we had to say, how could we relate this particular chapter heading, vaccines or vitamins or polio or the pill, to to a series of discoveries, and sometimes those can be kind of eureka eureka moments, and sometimes uh, their gradual realization of a better way of doing something or a better way of treating something or a better way of understanding something so so discovery itself is a flexible concept but but because we've organized this book around great discoveries in medicine it's it's a nice take on on the content uh, of of medical knowledge and and at some level i suppose is a recognition that we do know more today about Health and disease than people, two hundred or three hundred years ago. So you get both that sense of, of continuities and uh, and of and of change. And most change, but not all, is for the better.
2: Mm. You mentioned one thing about how you. One thing that you illustrated was the relationship between doctors and patients. And I wondered um, how
3: has that changed over the course of history, for example. Well, I think that I think the depiction. Well, well if you, yeah. if, you have, if you go if you look for 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 general practice today, the pictures are pretty boring because it's a patient and a doctor sitting in in our familiar sort of uh, gp 's office, which quite frankly is not very not very attractive. Um, there are some wonderful fine art pictures of of, of doctors and their patients in, and they, you know they tend to be elite patients and elite doctors, so they're often beautifully dressed and, there's, and the setting is often quite wonderful so um, you, you have all you have those aspects uh, I do you think you can see a difference in in the way they're depicted?
4: Well yes you can I mean the, 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 the classic way of depicting the doctor in the 18th century is caricature and doctors are usually uh, very obese gouty themselves probably and maybe treating gouty patients uh, with their gold-headed cane and their wig and so forth Um, Victorians take doctors very seriously, uh, and the more standard depiction in the 19th and early 20th century of doctors is serious, caring, you know, by the bedside and so forth, even Picasso, uh, not noted for his um, general sense of reverence for everything. Uh, One of of the most famous pictures is, is, is of a doctor, Sitting at the bed of a sick or dying child, and it's—I mean—it's one of the one of the wonderful kind of early Picasso before he becomes blue and 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 abstract and so forth. Um, so I mean, you you can certainly get from the illustrations the ways in which society treats their healers in particular periods. Um, we've come back now to expecting often to see doctors being poked. I mean, because you see them, you know, the cartoons and newspapers or or in in magazines and books are as likely to have returned to uh, the older genre of caricaturing doctors and making them into either buffoons or ignoramuses or money-grubbing or something. Um, So so these things change. Doctors do have uh, probably less power than they did a generation ago but they certainly have a lot more power than they have had historically in terms of the who calls the shots in the doctor-patient relationship, and that comes back to, to, to the knowledge base, the fact that doctors uh, do know more about patients and their patients' bodies and how they work than, than they did 200 or 300 years ago when certainly educated patients and doctors kind of spoke the same language and they all accepted the kind of, Hippocratic uh, tradition of humors and, and imbalances and so forth. So, so there wasn't that that distance between the, mm. the, the the doctor, the physician, and at least the educated educated patient. And that, of course, has changed in the last two hundred years. I just but
2: quite like to ask you one final question: um, What, in your view, um, are or is the the greatest? discovery in, in medicine?
4: I I think I would still have to come down that the germ theory is, is the, the most important, maybe not the greatest in terms of technical sophistication, but that the notion that disease can be caused by microorganisms that exist out there and invade the body caused a complete turnaround in the way that, that most medical traditions, the Hippocratic, but also the Chinese, the uh, the uh, Indian, and so forth, had conceived of, of disease as largely something that comes from within rather than from without. So this this change uh, of understanding about the cause of lots of diseases, not all by any means, um, is probably, if you had to choose one, um, the single most important thing because that also has enabled the development of vaccines, uh, of antibiotics, of ways of dealing with and of uh, much closer understanding of the way in which uh, the traditional scourges of humanity are spread uh, in communities and therefore to provide a a rational logical basis for prevention as well as for for prevention uh, in the public health sense, prevention in the Immunization, sense, and and treatment in in terms of um, antibiotics and other other pharmaceuticals. So I would I would vote for germ theory.
2: Thank you for listening to this month's podcast. If you want to find out further information about the history of the Tower of London or the 1911 Chinese Revolution, visit our website www.historytoday.com where you'll be able to read Nigel Jones and Jonathan Fenby's full-length articles.